the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. faith of Bartimaeus, important for us to remember. It was faith that was persistent, because it says he shouted all the more. God is not bothered by our persistence. He welcomes it. We also see here in this story that his faith knew who Jesus was. He called him son of David. That was a messianic title. And he understood that Jesus was Messiah. He was the son of David. This is a fulfillment of the promise of the prophets. And that he could turn to Jesus because Jesus could do anything. Do you have a prayer request of God that you're starting to wonder if he will ever answer? Today you will learn from Pastor Gary's message to keep being persistent. God is not bothered by your persistence. Keep asking, keep knocking, keep coming to the Lord with all of your needs and requests. Pastor Gary encourages you that faith is persistent. Faith requires this trait. Remember that God is faithful to answer you. He may not answer in the way you'd like, but He will always answer and work for your good. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 10, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked in verse 18, why do you call me good? Now I love the way that Jesus often will answer a question with a question. This is important for all of us in sharing your faith. And uh, if you want to, you know, if you love studying apologetics about how to share your faith and, you know, how to respond to people when they ask you some critical questions about Christianity and why you believe what you believe that a great tool to employ that Jesus models for us is to a- ask a question uh, in response to a question, not to be you know, obstinate, but as an entry point. Jesus asks questions as an entry point to find out where the person is coming from. Too many times when people ask you a question about your faith or about Christianity or about the Lord or about God, they're asking and we rush to answer them, but we're missing the entry point because they're asking from a different perspective. And so what Jesus does here is he says, well, why do you call me good? Here's what he wants to find out. He says, no one is good except God alone. So he's wanting to know from this guy, will you call me good, but no one is good except God. So either I'm not good because he shouldn't call anybody good except God or I'm God. Which am I? I'm either not good or I'm God. He's trying to find out here what this guy actually believes about it. 
And then Jesus goes on, he says in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, or in other words, do not covet, honor your father and mother. Now, what Jesus just did here is, he just quoted the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, obviously, Ten Commandments, (laughs) and there are two tablets of the testimony. The second tablet are these, and if you look at what Jesus just recited here, he recited all of these, uh, almost in the same order. He starts actually with number six, and he says, um, you know, you, you've heard the commandments, do not murder, and then he continues in order, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not covet, and then he goes back to the one at the top, honor your father and mother, but he recites all of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. And what the second tablet of the Ten Commandments are all about is the horizontal. It's all about our relationship with our fellow man. The second half of the Ten Commandments is all about our relationship with our fellow man. Are you honoring your mom and dad? Don't murder somebody. Uh, Don't commit adultery. Don't don't defraud your spouse and don't commit adultery with another person. Don't steal from somebody. Don't give false testimony against another person. Don't covet what somebody else has. The second half of the Ten Commandments is all horizontal. It's all relational in relation to your fellow man. So that's what Jesus quotes. Now this is all to expose a greater uh, issue in this guy's life. And so he does this intentionally. He doesn't start with the first tablet. He starts with the second tablet. And in response, the guy says this, verse 20, Teacher, he declared, all these, notice he dropped the good, okay? Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I've been going to church all my life. I've kept all of these. And Jesus, verse 21, looked at him and loved him. By the way, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only Mark records that second part. Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. This wasn't a look like he was scolding him. This isn't a look of like, I can't believe you only have obeyed the second tablet. It's none of that. He's not squinting his eyes. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not. He looks at him and he loves him because he has genuine compassion for this guy. This guy has been doing his best. But Jesus is about to show him that doing your best is not good enough. Because what happens is then Jesus, after he looks at him and loves him, he says this in verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. Everything. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad. This is the only time recorded in the Gospels that someone rejects the invitation to be saved. And what Jesus has just exposed is the problem that the guy has is the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because the first tablet, it's all about your relationship with God. The whole part about, you know, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's all relational to God. The first tablet of the testimony is all vertical. And what is Jesus doing? He's exposing this guy's problem. The problem was not that he was wealthy. God never has a problem with people being wealthy. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy 18 that it is God who has given us the ability to produce wealth. 
David was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. God's problem is not with wealth. The problem God has is when we make wealth our God. And that's what this guy had done. This guy had made wealth, had made money his idol, he had made money his God, and thus he had violated the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Because instead of serving God and God alone, he was serving money. And he was putting money on the throne of his life. And that's why he went away sad. Not because wealth itself is a sin, it's not. It's because wealth had become his God. And Jesus, in this tactful, loving way, exposed the guy's problem. The problem was not the second tablet. That's wonderful. Horizontally, you're doing great, but vertically, not so good. And when Jesus challenged him to sell everything and come follow him, give everything he had to the poor, his face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth, because wealth, in essence, was his God, was his idol. And Jesus looked around at his disciples in verse 23, and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God who have made money their God. That's what he's saying there. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Now that might seem like a question out of context, but here's, here was the common thought of the day. The thought was that if, per, if a person was wealthy, it was an indication of God's favor. The disciples needed to learn something here themselves as well. That the, the idea was, well, this guy is wealthy. If you're saying, Jesus, it's hard for, for people who are wealthy, who have made wealth their God, to get into heaven, we thought that wealth was an indication of God's favor. So what are you saying? This is confusing to his own disciples. And Jesus said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A rich man, again, implied who has made money his or her God. Now, many of you have heard a lot of different teachings, as I have over the years, about the eye of the needle and the camel and all this stuff about how on some city gates there was a smaller little gate and that camels would have to go through it after the main gate was shut at the end of a day and the way that the camel would have to get through that little tiny gate, which was sometimes called the eye of a needle, is to throw off all the baggage and everything and then push and squeeze that little camel through that little eye of the needle. That is baloney. There's no such thing. Listen, in Mark's gospel, the word for needle is actually the Greek word for a sewing needle. And in Luke's gospel, because he was a doctor, he uses a different Greek word, but it's a, it's a word that means a surgical needle. The thing that Jesus was saying is, for someone who was made something or someone else their God instead of the true and living God, it is impossible to get into heaven. In the context, what he means is a self-made person is never going to be good enough to get into heaven. It is impossible for a person who is just simply doing and being a self-made person to get into heaven by their own good works and the stuff that they do. It is impossible. He is using here a metaphor to express an impossible thing. We cannot get to heaven except by one way. And that's why Jesus then goes on to say this in verse 27 when he looks at them and he says, with man this is impossible. Salvation is impossible unto yourself, but not with God all things are possible. 
And Peter said to him, well, we have left everything to follow you. <laughs> this, is, this is funny because what Peter is doing here is he wanted to contrast their obedience with that of this rich guy. And so Peter says, well, you know, we've done pretty good because we left everything to follow you. You know, <laughs> let me see if I can stretch my arm back again and pat my own back here. That's what I'm thinking. Jesus, right? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, parenthetically, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions, by the way, and in this age, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter prides himself on how much they left in order to follow Jesus, and Jesus is basically saying, again, you know, I've heard a variety of teachings on this, you know, kind of the health, wealth, and prosperity people like you to think that, you know, no matter what you give, you're going to get a hundredfold in this lifetime, bless God, you're going to get it all back and more. Listen, if he means it literally, you're going to get a hundred mothers too, and a hundred sisters too. The only part that the health, wealth, and prosperity people like are the hundred homes. We like the hundred homes part. We want that. Oh, we forget, we, want, we don't want the persecution part, and we don't want a hundred mothers. What Jesus is saying is this. Anything you possibly give up in the service of the kingdom pales in comparison to that which you will gain. There's nothing that you and I can give up that is even comparable to all that we gain in Christ. Everything that he has given us by spilling his own blood on the cross to purchase us from sin and death so that we might have life in his name and heaven is our eternal home and reward, nothing we could possibly sacrifice in this lifetime could compare to the wonderful things that await us in Christ Jesus. So don't go around thinking of all the things you've given up and thinking somehow that God is impressed by that. He's not impressed by anything I've given up. Because what? He has given up immeasurably more than I could ever possibly give up. Jesus gave his own life for me and for you. How could we possibly take pride in thinking, well, I gave this up, and you know, I, in 1993 I sold my house and I went on the mission field. That's wonderful. That's great. But don't think that that's going to earn you brownie points in heaven because Jesus shed his blood for you and for me. And sometimes we get this very horizontal perspective of things that we've sacrificed and things we've given up, and it really doesn't compared to all that we gain and all that he's given in order to purchase us. And then Jesus says this, it's it, you know one of these paradoxes, many who are first will be last and last first, a reminder to us of just you know positions of being servants and humble. And verse 32 says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And so he tells them plainly, he's going to be crucified. And he, you know, is talking about his own impending suffering that is at hand. Now, you would think that after Jesus just gets through saying, guys, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. I just want you to know that we're going up to Jerusalem. We've been here before, but on this trip, this is going to be kind of the end of my public ministry. I'm about ready to go to the cross. I'm about ready to be crucified. You'd think if you were one of the 12 and you just heard Jesus say that, 
you might be just kind of like humble and awestruck and quiet and no, no, no. Look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We just have a really tiny request here. And, And Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Just wait. Wait a minute. Jesus just talked about how he's going to be killed. And all you boys are interested in knowing is who can have the most prominent positions. Listen, Jesus is just talking about suffering, and they're talking about status. Isn't this amazing? The juxtaposition of these two stories is just incredible here. I'd like to think I'd do better. I don't think I would have. But, but I like to think so. When I look at these guys, they're just, they're numbskulls sometimes, and you think, man, there's hope for me. Because Jesus just, Jesus, Jesus just gets through, through saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm gonna be mocked and, and spit upon and flogged, and I'm gonna die. I, I have a question. Yeah? Can, can I be in the most prominent place when, when you go through all that? After all that's done? I, I'm just curious. Now, Matthew's gospel says that the, James and John's mommy asks for them. Isn't that incredible? That is just incredible. These are full-grown men. Full-grown men. And mommy's asking. And those guys are just standing there like, go ahead, mom, ask. It's incredible. Now, Jesus replies in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Oh, we can, they answered. Yes, we can. They have no clue. Zero, no clue. And what he's talking about here is the baptism of his suffering. And, and, and they, they say, yeah, we can, but they don't understand all that he's saying. And Jesus said to them, oh, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And, and, he, and he tells them in advance, yeah, oh, yeah, you will suffer. And in fact, uh, James, he will be the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred in Acts uh, chapter 12 when he is uh, beheaded. And, um, and John, his brother, will not be martyred, but he will end up living out the remaining of his last years as an old man in a prison camp on the island of Patmos, hauling rocks in a bucket. And he will be persecuted there by Emperor Domitian. He will be banished there by Emperor Domitian because uh, of, of his faith in Christ. So he will end up living out his life in basically a prison camp. But he will be there on Patmos and receive the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then he will write by, by inspiration the book of Revelation. So uh, they will experience a certain amount of suffering for sure. And verse 40 41 says that when the ten heard about this, heard what the other two had done, they became indignant with James and John. Now listen, this is my personal opinion. I don't believe for a minute they were mad because they thought, you guys shouldn't have done that. I think they're mad because they didn't beat James and John to it. <laughs> That's my opinion. I could be wrong, and I might have to apologize to a bunch of guys one day when I see them. But I think they're mad. And why do I think that? Because one chapter back, verse uh, chapter 9, in, in verse 33 down to verse 37, was that whole conversation that they had on the, along the road to Capernaum. And what was the conversation about? Who was the greatest? That's what they were wanting to know. Who's the greatest? So when I, when I see this scene here in chapter 10 and James and John want the positions of honor, I think the other 10 are indignant because they didn't ask for it first. And they were upset that they didn't go for it first. Well, anyhow, verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, you know, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he often emphasizes obedience. In the last part of Jesus' ministry, he hammers them with humility. He says, listen, you guys have to get this. You're going to have to have the heart of a servant. You're going to have to be humble like a little child. The last will be first. The first will be last. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you hearing me? In other words, he's saying to them, and I want those words to echo in my own heart, that none of us should get so full of ourselves that we think that we're here to be served. No, we are here to serve. We are here to honor. We are here to help. We are here to be humble in relation to others if we want to take on the true character and disposition of our Savior. Jesus was a humble servant He took off his garment and washed their feet. He dies on a cross. He borrows money to pay his taxes. He has no place to lay his head. He walks the streets healing and teaching and praying. Never proud, never arrogant, never to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, the last story here in this chapter, and then we'll close. It says, and then they came to Jericho because they're on their way up to Jerusalem. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging, which was typical because if you were blind in that day or had some kind of a major physical disability, the only way you could make a living basically was to sit at the city gates and to beg and to kind of panhandle. But that's because you were trying to catch the people as they were coming in and out of the city through the main gate. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Isn't this just something in the same chapter, you know, the parents and little children, you know, don't, don't bother Jesus. And now here's a guy who's blind and needs healing and don't bother Jesus. It's like, wow, I mean, you know, where's ministry here? And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Another example of how Jesus... You know, he he always did stuff a little differently. Sometimes he would heal through spit and mud and and, uh, sometimes uh, just say the word. And here he just says the word. There's no mention here of him having contact with this guy, although he did heal that way in other occasions. But Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Four quick points about the faith of Bartimaeus, important for us to remember. It was faith that was persistent because it says he shouted all the more. God is not bothered by our persistence. He welcomes it. We also see here in this story that his faith knew who Jesus was. He called him son of David. That was a messianic title. And he understood that Jesus was Messiah. He was the son of David. This was a fulfillment of the promise of the prophets. And that he could turn to Jesus because Jesus could do anything. And we also see that his faith had appealed to the mercy of God. What was it that he cried out for? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me because he recognized I don't deserve anything, but I appeal to your mercy. 
if, listen, if, if God never did another thing for us, he's already done more than enough. We don't deserve anything. He's already done more than enough. And he appealed to his mercy. And then finally, faith humbly asked. When Jesus said, what do you want? He said, I want to see. And it's good for us to just be specific with our requests and to ask the Lord to approach him according to his mercy and to know that he's all-powerful as our Savior and as our Lord and to be persistent in our requests. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know